Welcome to Cutthroat Queens Podcast, where we believe that every person deserves to be their authentic selves, unapologetically, without fear or judgment. We're here to take an open and honest look at all things indie horror. My name is Brett Mitchell-Kent, and I am joined by the dashing chair of the Tooth Fairy Sighting Club, Elton Skelter. Hi, Brett. Happy Pride Month to you. Hello, happy Pride Month. So it's here. It's finally here. It's it's the big month for, for the queer community, and we are... Looking forward to celebrating it with some of our amazing guests today. Who have we got on? So I was able to sit down with um, Ray Knowles, who's the author of a couple of awesome things that are released slash releasing. Uh, Stradivarius is one of them. And then um, you, who did you sit down with? Oh, I sat down with Laura Gislason and um, we talked about their novella um, Inside Out, which is a, a, an amazing body horror collection. And, and we talked about the Goop Troop, which is a, a joint effort that they have going with uh, Eric Ragland and Shelley Levine. Um, really exciting stuff. And then the two of us, we got together and we double teamed the guys from Slashing Horror Press. <laughs> yes. Um, so D- David Jack... Fletcher, and I'm going to get this right this time, and Leroy Cross James. And they are the founders, editor, marketing, we talk about it, uh, for the new Slashic Horror Press, which is a queer-focused press. David Jack Fletcher is also the author of the brand new release, Raven's Creek, that has come out today. Um, So we're going to be getting into that with them, and we will end the show with a really, really nice reading from that book. So should we take it away? Yeah, let's get talking to him. Okay, first of all, I'm going to sit down with Law, and we are going to talk goop. I'm going to break the things you try hard to mend And pretend it's the end when we've only just begun So when you're ready to come back, this coffin's made for two Okay, and we are the Cutthroat Queens. We're here with Law Gislason, and we are going to be talking to them today about all things horror, everything we've got. So, um, welcome, Law. And happy Pride Month to you. Happy Pride Month to you too. Um, so thank you very much for coming on. It's really exciting to have you here. We're really, really happy that you are here. Uh, you've just got me today because um, we are dividing and conquering so we can fit as many <laughs> people on as we can to just celebrate the huge rainbow of the, of the queer spectrum this month. Um, so why don't you introduce yourself a little? Tell me, tell me a bit about yourself. Uh, my name is Laura. I'm from a small town on Vancouver Island in Canada. Um, I write a lot of what has become known as goopy horror, where bad things happen to people and people's insides. Um, I wrote a novella called Inside Out, and I edited the Bound in Flesh anthology of trans body horror for Ghoulish Books. Uh, And I talk about them a lot. So I have a cat named Pierogi Plyer, who I love very much. (laughs) (laughs) And will they be joining us today? Uh, He's sleeping right now, which is good because he otherwise would be very annoying. Okay. (laughs) So I've recently listened to an interview you did on Ledger podcast. So my thoughts today was just not to try and cover too much of the familiar ground, but to ask you a few more um, questions that were sort of outside of that about your upcoming work, if you're happy with that. Yeah. So um, your 
your writing is like very visceral and there is no better <laughs> word to describe it than goopy um and that kind of it feels to me like a lot of um sort of body horror cinema sort of uh styles is, is your is your work inspired by a lot of uh, films you watch or or sort of more of the medium that you read yeah I, yeah i think it's more film i'm a very visual person and my introduction to horror was through film so i think having the the image in my mind as if it's a film probably helps uh and i mean uh i'm a big fan of hellraiser so i'm sure <laughs> that that comes across a little bit yeah absolutely um so what, what exactly about sort of body horror is it that really speaks to you why, why is it body horror not anything else that you uh you, you might want to sort of look into in horror uh man that's a hard question but i think most of it is the creativity and like the amount of things that you can do with the human body and other <laughs> bodies um through all mediums through uh movies you have all of the practical effects and cgi through books you have all of the descriptions of things that happen and then uh video games also are a great way to showcase body horror either by the, the player or the environment it just it like i don't know it hits that one part of my brain that that, that makes me happy yeah, yeah. <laughs> the creativity side of you yeah i do um i recently read inside out and i got very much sort of um very sort of uh sort of 1980s horror kind of a bit sort of nightmare on elm street special effects <laughs> kind of feel to it with a lot of, oh, nice. sort of melting bodies some like really cronenbergian kind of stuff in there as well it was just yeah and the, the, the best thing about it as well is i really really love i said this to you the other day i really really love your narrative voice because oh, it's so it's easy to relate to it. It sort of straddles that bit between um, sort of grotesque but literary as well. And I, I kind of just love that. I find it really, really easy to relate to. And um, so, yeah, just massive fan. Just wanted to say that. Well, I really appreciate it. <laughs> so we are soon, you're soon going to let the world see the Goop Troop. Yes. Tell me about the Goop Troop. How did it start? Who is in the Goop Troop? So... Um... I yeah goop is like how I describe my horror and I just started calling me and my friend Eric Raglan and my other friend Shelly Levine the goop troop because we write a lot of gross stuff and we have a camaraderie about that and I was lamenting about how some open calls are like no extreme horror and we we're like oh well I guess we can't write for them now and we were like, well, what if we just had our own collection of really gross horror? And it kind of blossomed from there. So we each have a couple stories. And they're all sort of uh, introduces almost moral lessons by the creature on the cover, which is a totem of pig heads uh, that the cover artist Val drew. And, and we were like, that's so cool. We're going to you know, incorporate it into the book. Hopefully pre-orders will be up soon. I don't know when because Amazon is stinky about it, but I'm, I'm pretty excited. And hopefully if it does well, we'll do a second one. Excellent. And um, are you self-publishing that one or is that one going through a, a press? That one's going through Dark Lip Press, which is the same one that did Inside Out. 
And toothworms. Yes. Loved toothworms. Uh, just a little aside here as well. You can get toothworms on Godless at the moment for 99 cents. And it does include the MP3 audio book file with it as well. I bought that the other day and it was such a steal. I just have to shout that one out. So go and get it now. Okay, so let's talk about Inside Out. I um, I didn't know what to expect going into it because I, I've never really read body horror to that goopy extreme before. Um, so where did it start? Because obviously it's a, it's a collection of stories that all file into the same narrative. So what sort of drew the inspiration for that for you? Um, it came directly from a dream that I had. Uh, there's a chapter called uh, The Patrol, where there's a guy who gets sort of infected and starts melting. And that was my, my dream from his perspective. And I woke up and I was like, oh, man, I really need to write that down. And then uh, it kept branching out from there. I'd have another idea, another idea. So they're very naturally were short stories. And I was like, oh, well, I guess these take place in the same world. <laughs> so I guess it's it's like part collection, part novella. Uh, and they do have a over like a connecting thread between them, but they can also be taken by themselves, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And it's really interestingly done as well, the way you've taken that sort of epistolary, is that how you say it? Epistolary sort of uh, approach to it, where you've got some of its diary entries, some of its um, crime reports, some of it's just uh, from the person's perspective. So yeah, there's a lot of, uh, of stuff you can get in there. What? How much of sort of the idea of a, a pandemic was inspired by what we've all just been through? It didn't start pandemic inspired. Um, I I think uh, COVID was like just starting when I started writing it. But as I continued, it started to feel more and more like it was impossible for me to not have been inspired by it just because of everything we we're going through. And it was so everywhere all the time, horrible stress. Um, so there, there are a few parts that are definitely directly from COVID. Um, like there's a part where a guy's watching basically Big Brother because I saw that clip of Big yeah. Brother where they're like, hey guys, I know we've been stuck in this house for a couple months, but also this thing called COVID is happening outside. And like how like how are you supposed to react in that situation to have this information? And um I have a news conference where I, I use some very uh stale COVID language yeah. that like every politician uses to talk to people. These are unprecedented times. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> I hate that word now. <laughs> Can, we have, Can you pay me every time they say that? Because I would I would love that. I'm so tired <laughs> the way people talk about things. Oh yeah, I remember that Big Brother clip as well. Just how bizarre it was. Because even watching Big Brother is like a just a weird step away from reality in itself it doesn't feel like reality even though it's supposed to be reality tv it seems so ridiculous mm -hmm. but then watching them explain the sort of real-time effects of covid as soon as i read that that section of your book i was like this perfectly encapsulates what i imagine those people must have been feeling like they, they can't have taken it seriously they kind of been like are you yeah like how you like i would not have believed the no. producers or whoever was telling them that like it sounds it sounds so fake yeah. 
but no it's happening it's like yeah at the end of it if you don't believe we're going to give you some extra chicken for dinner like you know it seemed like one of those stupid ploys that they would come up with um the producers would come up with and it just it just seemed so surreal mm-hmm. i really liked the the chapter as well where you had sort of the priest who was taking it to a sort of a a religious sort of place and the untangling of that character sort of where did that sort of stem from for you um well i think whenever there's in an extreme circumstance like this obviously fictional uh there are going to be people that see something more in it something religious in it and i didn't really grow up with religion so i hope that it comes across uh i don't know legit or authentic i don't know what the word i'm looking for is but um yeah like if you saw something like that you'd think well maybe there's a god and maybe this is it but i like the idea of having that experience and then realizing oh, actually, this sucks. <laughs> like, yeah. he gets, uh, uh, spoilers, he gets ripped apart by his god, and he's like, oh, this is the worst thing I could ever experience. I regret my decision. I just, um, I just love it every time you, like, sort of do almost a dialogue thought for him. He's like, oh, <laughs> just so disappointed. <laughs> oh. I'm, gl- I'm, I'm glad you like that, because I was like, uh, I was really proud of that part. Yeah. I, I couldn't think yeah. of anything else that you'd be thinking. I, I don't know, particularly in the circumstances of going through all the pain and stuff, but that just it encapsulated everything that I just thought. And when you read it sort of with an inflection as well, just being like, oh, like I've been such a oh, dumbass. Man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's happened? Um, so Toothworms is a short story released separately from, yep. from Inside Out. And it is disgusting. And <laughs> I, I don't think I can ever look in my mouth again. It's it's gross. And uh, spaghetti is going to be troublesome for me in the future. Um, Sorry. Yeah. How did, how did you come up with that? So uh, I had COVID and it was terrible. And after we were in that kind of, we don't know if we're better yet, period, I got a tooth infection. And it was so incredibly painful and i would chew on ice so my my mouth would get numb and then all of a sudden all of the pain would come back and i would want to throw up and i have a lot of uh wikipedia deep dive rabbit holes and one of them was the concept of tooth worms which is uh, a middle ages thing where they thought that bad tooth stuff came from worms that were in your teeth and i was like well i could probably just combine these things <laughs> um so half of it is from my own horrible tooth infection which is fine now thankfully and the other half is okay but what if there were worms in it <laughs> and i think it might be my favorite thing i've ever written and i love the um audio version of it maybe even more so i'm happy that uh it continues to disgust people (laughs) it really does and i think that's going to stay with me for quite a long time as well because not only was it really gross and sort of it finished on this sort of perfect suggestive continuation (laughs) which you just can't kind of get away from like it's not over (laughs) not to spoil it so everyone go out there and buy it like i say it's on godless for 99 cents but it is is perfect and like you say the the audiobook is fantastic as well absolutely love that 
do you um have any plans to do any more sort of single release short stories oh you know i haven't thought about it but i would love to i have a couple of other works that i could consider for it or maybe something new but that's a great idea <laughs> <laughs> do you ever sort of um i know that you're like working on sort of longer pieces now but do you ever just take breaks from them that you can't carry on with this piece right now you just need to take a break and write something else and then just churn out a short story here there and everywhere um i did recently write a short story that i had been submitting to places it was my first uh, erotic horror story so that part is extra nerve-wracking because there's that added layer to it where you you want it to be I'm not scary in my case. I want it to be gross, but also a bit sexy. So I'm like, did I did I manage that? We'll see. Um, the beta readers liked it, so uh, hopefully it will find a home. And uh, I don't want to spoil it in case it in case it does. But yeah, I am a short story person first and foremost. So that's where I'm most comfortable. And that's why I'm having a hard time with the longer <laughs> stuff because I'm like, this should be over by now. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just how my brain works. Yeah. I started off that way too. And, and sort of since sort of transitioning into slightly longer work, I can't do short stories as well as I could before because I find myself just stretching narratives into too long a sequence and, and too. How did, how did you transition from short stories to longer stuff? Like, can you give me any tips? <laughs> well, I think the first sort of longer piece I wrote um, started as a short story. So the the opening chapter itself was just a short story, a one and done sort of uh, just a murder. Basically, I just wrote a big gay murder. And um, but I really liked the voice and I really liked the way that I'd sort of led this character out of the situation and felt like there was more to, to be mined there. And I'd had this idea in my head a little while before about sort of a completely unrelated story about how um, two people could come together under the most unlikely circumstances. And I thought this character would be really interesting in that setting. And so oh, I just, okay. so, so it felt they naturally kind of went together. Yeah. They, they just kind of merged. And I think that's like, I recently got a book signed as well that I've um, is a sequel to another one, but I'd planned this slasher like a year before and all of the elements from that seem to fit into this story as well. So I find myself with a lot of ideas, but they all kind of interlink in some way. I don't know if that just means I could keep writing the same stuff, but they uh, they, they do kind of feed into each other. And it's just, yeah. But now I find my brain won't go back. I can't be as punchy as I can. Uh, I used to be anymore. Like oh, it's really okay. difficult to be sort of concise, whereas mm. especially sort of, I write a lot of psychological horror. So it's kind of, you know, a bit more in-depth thought and really inside the guy's head so he thinks about things way too much and so yeah it's just really really difficult to sort of get back to to doing that again but no if I have I, no tips for you <laughs> <laughs> if I could find the middle ground that would be great I don't how did you say toothworms and it was very like punchy and oh there could be more I that's like I feel like that's every one of my stories so that might also contribute to it because I'm like oh well how am I supposed to end this? I can't. I can't have a punchy, fast ending because it's supposed to keep going for another, you know. So in your short stories, don't you, don't you struggle to stop? <laughs> like when you get no. to that bit, you're like, oh, now I want a sequel because I want to know what happened. No, I, I, it's almost like I go into a story knowing how it's going to end, and the rest of it is figuring out how it starts. Yeah. 
Um, uh, I have, I think I, I mentioned in the Ledger podcast, but I have a story in Goop Troop that is about uh, fetuses, and I knew how it was going to end, but I didn't know how it was going to start and how we explain what's going on. So that part is the difficult part. Um, I don't know. It's almost like I write with a punchy line that starts the story. And then I'm like, okay, well, how does this happen? How do we get to this line? And that's always the hardest bit, isn't it? Like, how do I feasibly connect these two points? I don't know. (laughs) You just kind of have to sit there and think. I think a lot of uh, writing is just sitting there, staring into thin air and just being like, okay, think, think, I can do this. Absolutely. I, I am a very slow writer and I am a, I'm a big thinker. <laughs> so I just sit there and stare at the Google document for what feels like hours sometimes. Yeah. Trying to do background research and not get like picked up by the FBI. <laughs> <laughs> like how like I don't know about you, but uh like all of the tabs that I have open on my browser are like Wikipedia and random writing stuff i like how many tabs do you have open right now i'm curious none absolutely none None? no i've i've taken to bookmarking i can't keep everything open because it gives me loads of anxiety it just feels like unfinished work i can't close it because then if i close it then i'll never see it again (laughs) you just gotta bookmark it you gotta bookmark it and then put it into a separate bookmark folder called whatever that that bit's about or whichever piece of work it's you know there's ways there's ways but yeah you can't just leave them open because eventually someone's going to find your phone when you leave it on a bus somewhere and you're going to be in a lot of trouble <laughs> you just got to look really bad. I, I never let go of my phone no, <laughs> yeah. no one will ever get it <laughs> i'm hoping to be buried with mine just because i don't want anyone to see my internet history oh my god you, you don't you don't want to know actually yeah all the all the uh the fetuses and stuff i can imagine there's some really <laughs> interesting well, okay. <laughs> okay i think i need to explain myself here i'm not Please. like googling i'm not googling pictures of fetuses i'm not i'm not that much of a psycho i saw this picture of a brand of yarn and it said baby crushed velvet and i thought that's hilarious and so <laughs> and you can interpret that in a very bad way and it was like a red velvet too and i was like oh wouldn't it be funny if it was actually made of babies (laughs) this is how this is how i think i don't i don't know so yeah i i looked up uh how fetuses develop because that part is uh disgusting and interesting because our intestines are start on the outside of our body and then they like curl up and go inside of our belly while we're in there and i absolutely am horrified by this idea and i don't know why it's just i guess you know they won't fit so just do it outside and push them in it's surprising as well that not more people are born with their intestines on the outside like there must be some kind of problem in that step like i'm 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 sure there are people who are born with it, but it's probably not as common as people who are born without a butthole, which is apparently one in a hundred people, which is like, yeah, like, I don't know how many people do I know who didn't have a butthole? (laughs) I don't think, well, I don't think anyone would tell you if they didn't have a butthole. No, no, 
No, not unless you were were getting up around there, you know. It's a (laughs) a personal thing. Well, that just evolved, didn't it? (laughs) (laughs) So after Goop Troop, um, you've got uh, another longer work in the, uh, longer book in the works. Is that right? A sort of a cosmic kind of thing going on? Yeah, right now I'm working on um, Cosmic Dyke Patrol, which I, I pitched as like, queer ghostbusters with cosmic stuff <laughs> and it's uh it's my current project and then i'm i'm like nervous and excited about it because it's, it's my first like long narrative because a lot of my stuff is very short story uh and uh i it's a learning experience but i have a lot of helpful friends and uh, beta feedback on it and then it's it's already done but it's going to come out next year is the pirate novella i wrote with uh shelly levine called the flesh of the sea which uh has been going through numerous edits right now but i'm i'm happy with it that's awesome so you've got a lot of good uh good pokers in the fire a lot of work coming out coming up so everyone can really look out for you um Okay, so from sort of a, a craft point of view, if you encounter a, a new writer who's looking to get into doing what you're doing, um, putting themselves out there, sending to submission calls, publishing, um, what kind of advice would you give them? Well, it's a bit complicated now because I was going to say, like, you should get on Twitter, but Twitter is kind of a sinking ship at the moment. <laughs> but I think just yeah uh interacting with other people in the horror community even if you're not actually like writing or doing anything can be really helpful there are a lot of um writers uh groups that meet up and read each other's work and uh it i think it's just helpful to to put yourself out there because i really i like i would not have had any of the opportunities i've had if i didn't ramble on twitter about them that's how i got bound in flesh it's how i met all of my friends so you gotta like take chances and it it's so nerve-wracking but just yeah. just talk to people yeah it is especially if you're sort of um sort of quite a timid person i'm, I'm not very sort of outgoing kind of person but there's a lot of uh people in this community who are so helpful and so friendly and and having those people to sort of bounce your ideas off is completely the best thing you can do when you're writing. I completely agree. Um, what's your favorite movie? Oh, The Blob. I mean, I don't know if you can see it, but I'm wearing a Blob shirt right there now. There it is. There it is. It I've is. Seen it. I've honestly never seen it. Oh my god, you have to watch it. <laughs> um, okay. That's my that's my closing. You have to watch it. Okay. It is uh, honestly in my opinion, better than the thing in terms of um, the amount of variety of special effects and the fact that it's also a remake. They do so many different things and they take the movie into such great places in comparison to the original that's just like some raspberry jam (laughs) that chases people. And I don't know, something about it has just always stuck with me and i really like the color pink so that probably helps but it's 
it's just a really good movie. <laughs> <laughs> so you suggest I watch the remake and, and maybe ignore the original then? Yeah, I've, I've never seen the original Blob. Okay. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I will watch it and I will report back on, on how traumatized I am because I have a feeling, having read your work, that I will be traumatized by your suggestion of film as well. Oh, yeah, there are some, there are some nasty bits, but I believe in you. You can do it. Okay, I will, I will report back. Okay, so it's Pride Month. So do you have any recommendations for queer creators that we can check out that you personally love, whether it's film or, or games or, or books? Um, I really love Judith Sonnet's work. She is like the queen of disgusting. Um, Paula D. Ash is also an amazing writer. Um, like literally everyone in Bound in Flesh <laughs> is great. Uh, Joe Coach and... Haley Piper, of course. And there's so many people. And there are a lot of really great um, Twitter lists right now, summing up a whole bunch of people you can check out if you want to find new people to read from. So I'm, I'm I might retweet one of those later and uh, tag I'm us. Hope- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, so yeah, a lot of the people that you said that I'm a big fan of myself as well. I lo- absolutely love Judith on it. Um, yeah. <laughs> I recently read No One Rides for Free and I don't think I'm ever going to recover. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still trying to make my way through Clown Hunt, but I, um, I'm afraid of clowns. So it's like, I'll read a sentence at a time. I'll get through it in a year or so. Um, so how does your queer identity impact your writing? How much of yourself do you put put into what you write? I think I put like probably too much of myself in my writing, but um, I mean, I I only have my own lived experience. So that's what I write from and not the, I mean, I haven't had somebody pull my insides out or anything like that, <laughs> but, but like the way that I think and the way that I speak to other people, I think comes through in my dialogue and the way that I want to interact with people so that includes the queer aspects of that and uh it's it's especially prevalent in cosmic dyke patrol because uh i'm I'm almost like each character is like a part of me and they're all interacting (laughs) with each other like multiple versions of yourself just all having a conversation yeah it's like this is the you know this is the outgoing part of me this is the the shy part of me. So it's a really sort of personal sort of version of yourself that you're putting out there with that one. Yeah. (laughs) She'll be exposed to what it's like living inside your own head. Um, I just wanted to know as well. So what does this month pride month? It's a celebration of all things queer. What does that, what does that really mean to you? Um, I, I saw a post recently that said like, it's great when you can finally like be your authentic weird self with your friends and not feel any judgment. And I think that that applies to a lot of things, but that especially pro- applies to uh, queer people because we often feel like the outsider or the weirdo, but the group of friends that I have right now, is I've never felt more comfortable and more like at ease with my friends. And I hope that for every queer person. And it it's a month about 
the history of queer people and also the future of queer people as we continue to move forward and need want better things for ourselves and for trans kids uh, and and hopefully not deal with bullshittery like we are right now yeah there's a lot of uh bad things lurking in the corners but i think this month is a really really good time for us just to come together as a community and really celebrate the progress we've made and and the things that we we do have and then you know once we've had too many vodka sodas and danced our asses <laughs> off, we can go back to trying to fight the good fight. But uh, yeah, I love this month. I think it's a really, really great month. And I'm um, just completely in awe as well of the amount of queer creators we have in our community and the, the volume of amazing work that's coming out. Um, tell us a little bit about where we can find you online. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Lorelei, L-O-R-E-L-L-I underscore. And uh on instagram with uh, my name laura gislison i also have a blog lauragislison.wordpress and um honestly yeah just, just if you just google my name i'm sure a lot of my stuff will come up <laughs> excellent and um and where can we buy your work you can get it at uh the darklit press website or Amazon and for Bound and Flush, you can get it from Ghoulish Books online store. That's awesome. Well, it's been really, really nice talking to you today. Thank you so much for joining us. And I'm wishing you a completely happy pride and uh, and best of luck in the future. We'll be Thank looking you. out for your uh, for your new work. Happy pride to you too. All right, and we are back from our break, and I am sitting here with Ray Knowles. She is an author and um, editor, and um, Ray, I'll go ahead and let you introduce yourself a little bit. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I am Ray Knowles. I am native to South Florida and author of The Stradivarius and forthcoming novella Merciless Waters, and recently became editor-in-chief of Lady Mantis Books, which is an imprint of Brigadescape Press, uh, specializing in erotic horror. Ah, that is so great. So anybody that listens to Cutthroat Queens is going to recognize Ray's name because I am a huge fangirl. Sorry to put you on the spot, but um, I feel like I accidentally bring Ray's work into almost every episode. So I am absolutely insanely excited to get to chat with her today. Um, so. How did you get started in your horror writing, erratic writing endeavors? Yeah, so I, I've shared this before, and I think it's like the silliest reason. Um, but I watched the movie Shirley on Hulu. Okay, so it's a fictionalized version of Shirley Jackson's life when she was working on one of her novels. And, you know, the background is that I wrote short stories in high school and was really always interested in writing. But something about watching that depiction of an author, it clicked in my brain that this is something I really want to throw myself into. And watch that movie. I said, I'm going to write a novel. I think my family thought I was losing it a little bit, but um, I did exactly that. I wrote my first novel and sort of the rest is history. I think I'm working on my fifth now. So wonderful. Was that Shirley movie? Is that the one that stars Elizabeth Banks? 
Yes. Yeah. Okay. It's I so thought that was wicked. Yeah. yeah. I've I've always loved Shirley Jackson, but I had never tried what was the Hangs a Man. Like I'd never read that book, and that was heavily in there. I've read it since, but that that's awesome. That you know, actually focusing on a horror author for once in popular media inspired you know a new generation of an author. Yeah. And, you know, coincidentally, I wasn't familiar with Shirley Jackson's work at the time that I watched that movie. But sort of looking back, I think I've been very inspired by her voice in writing and having especially um, Mary Cat, the narrator of We Have Always Lived in the Castle, um, that sort of strange voice that's immediately present there has been really inspiring and and something I think I've carried into some of my work. And your work tends to lean into the Gothic from what I've experienced, even if it's not, you know, traditional Gothic or modern Gothic in some cases, and hers definitely also leans that way. Totally. Yeah. So just, you know, kismet, I guess, meant to be. Yeah. <laughs> she maybe you're like her uh reincarnated or whatever. Oh, that maybe. Is, that children. would be an honor. <laughs> um, what so you said you wrote that novel. Is that one of the two that you have? Or is it just something step back? That will never see the light of day. So the first one I wrote, it was like a thriller, but it was just objectively bad. Um <laughs> You know, to a level that I'm not even interested in revising it. Uh, but hey, it like got me, you know, into the writing community. And, you know, you have to start somewhere. So I'm, I'm grateful for it, but it'll never see the light of day. Now, the book that did make the cut and it was your debut novel, right? Yeah. Yeah. This Radivarius. Can you tell me a little bit about that one? Yeah. So, um, I worked for many years uh, with folks who had, you know, maybe unusual experiences seeing and hearing things that other people don't see and hear and um, really have a heart for those folks and and have seen them um, unfairly represented in media. So my original idea was to write some sort of story that involved um, unusual experiences. Um, but that alone, that idea didn't have legs, right? That's what I call it when I have sort of a half formed idea, but I, you know, there's not enough there to actually create a project. So then, um, I started thinking about how gaslighting as a term gets thrown around quite a bit and, and my own experiences with gaslighting and the origin of the term gaslighting, right, is from Gaslight, which was a, a play by Patrick Hamilton and then adapted into a film in the late 30s starring Ingrid Bergman. And it was a, a really big film at the time. And it's incredible. Um, and then that idea sort of blended with a true crime story that I heard uh, on a podcast in which the owner of a Stradivarius violin went on vacation and asked neighbors to house it because of this, you know, million dollar instrument that was in the home. And I don't recall the details, but essentially the there there was a, a torture and, and murder over this violin and um, finding the certificate of authenticity for this violin. Um, and I was just so struck by obviously the tragedy of it, but the juxtaposition between 
something as, as beautiful as a very unique instrument versus torture and, and murder, you know, for the sake of greed. And so all of those three things sort of came together and became the Stradivarius. That is so crazy. I, I always wondered, like, as I saw, you know, the book being advertised and when I finally got the ability to read it, how you had come to that, you know, because a, a haunted violin, quote unquote, is <laughs> such a absolutely insanely unique concept. I just, I never understood how, and definitely my bag. I love when, I don't know how to how to put it, but when you take like an, an, a mundane object and that is like the the villain of a story, my favorite thing. So I was so excited for it. And obviously we all know I loved it a lot. <laughs> um, so as this being your debut, I've been seeing it everywhere. I'm so excited for the success of it. What have you learned about your craft and this career since it's been out in the world with people? Yeah. So I think writing is for me like a constant learning process, but I've learned a lot about style where I feel like I thrive. And in this case, you know, the Stradivarius is dual point of view um, and it's written in third person close. And I think that since writing the Stradivarius, I've discovered that I'm actually a lot more comfortable in first person present um, which is sort of, you know, getting into writing mechanics. I don't know how many people will be interested in that. But, you know, for me anyway, I really connect with voice a lot more when I'm writing in first. So when I look at the Stradivarius, I love it. You know, it has a special place in my heart as a debut. But I also think my style has grown or changed, you know, um, from the time that I wrote it. So there's also sort of a measure of disconnect, which is, I think, maybe common in, you know, the world of being an author, because the time between when you write something and when it's actually out in the world is so long, even in the best case scenario, like the Stradivarius got picked up pretty fast and put out for publication a year after I signed the contract. So that's also pretty fast in this world of publishing, but it still feels like leagues, leagues away. <laughs> I love what you said about the, the finding the voice, because that's, as a reader, such a key element for me is that the author has found the voice. Um, as a writer, I tend to be more successful writing in third person, but I always start in first person, always start in first person so I can find the voice. Like, but then I all, I switch it all back. So well, that's interesting. I, I just don't, I don't find a lot of success in that. Um, but, you know, speaking of the evolution of writing and that voice, uh, Merciless Waters, yeah. That is your upcoming, is it a novella? It's a novella. Okay. I So I the, for the, the listeners, um, if you're not familiar, there are, you know, novelettes, novellas, and novels. Publishers kind of use different ranges for that on what they choose. But typically, I would say what, like 15,000 to 25,000 is a novelette. Um, yeah. Anything b above that, but below like 40 is a novella. Or fifty is something like and, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's a novel, but it's a little shorter. I was lucky enough to to read Merciless Waters recently, and I am going to just gloat here because, like, oh my god, gush! That's the word, not gloat. I always use the wrong words on this thing. Um, it was wonderful. I, it's probably 
the best thing I've read this year. Oh. It is written in first person, right? I, if I'm remembering correctly and sorry, sorry, you tell me. So <laughs> you, you tell us about it. I'll, I'll just keep talking. Oh, thank you so much. Um, I, I'm in love with this story. So I, I glow to hear that you liked it so much. Um, Merciless Waters started as a throwaway tweet where I said, um, what if I wrote sapphic folk horror on a pirate ship? What then? You know, something like that. And I had such a positive response that I started to think maybe I should actually try to write sapphic folk horror on a pirate ship. Um, and Merciless Waters was born. So Merciless Waters follows Jack and Lily, um, who are a sapphic couple. And I've written about these characters under different names in a number of short stories. And uh, they generally have the same relationship dynamic, which is one sort of has some narcissistic slash antisocial traits, depending on the story <laughs> that she's in. And the other tends to be a little on the obsessive devotee type end and has, you know, this very intense and sort of unhealthy uh, love for, for one another. And, um, so, so yeah, it takes place on a pirate ship. It's not a pirate story. I like to make that distinction for people. They're not actually pirates, um, but it's loosely based on Rusalka lore, which I became fascinated with and, and actually have another short story, uh, starring a Rusalka. So yeah, it, it sort of follows this ship full of women um, who have no memories of before they were on the ship until they rescue a man who's adrift at sea and slowly start to remember how they came to be on the ship. And this creates a whole lot of chaos for them. It was, it was wonderful. I, it's so neat to hear you say that, you know, Jack and Lily were, I guess, reincarnations of characters that you utilize because they are very fully realized. So that makes absolute sense to me because those characters are, you know, firmly cemented in their personality types. And I've never heard of the, is it Ruxalka? Ruxalka, Ruxalka, yeah. That is such a neat concept. Can you give just a little bit about what that is? Yeah, so Ruxalka... Um, a number of countries have variations on the Rusalka. Translated, it means mermaid, but it's not mermaid as we would traditionally think of them in the United States. They don't have fish tails. Um, the Rusalka myths, again, vary, but basically uh, is a, a woman who dwells in the water and kind of like a spirit and uh, likely was drowned or um murdered by an abusive husband in many cases. And what I loved about them is that they are full of feminine rage and seeking vengeance. That's a theme that I love to write about. And additionally, that they are beautiful above the surface of the water and and lure men into the water with their beauty. But below the surface, uh, their true selves are revealed. So they're rotting corpses or skeletal below the surface of the water. And there's something so compelling to me about that. The the story, the book, uh, was extremely compelling. It kind of unraveled like a fine... I don't know what, what unravels, but like it was like there were different notes you were given just the right amount of information 
at the moment that you needed it to keep it just intriguing enough to pull through and then like when it all hit you're like oh wow it, it was wonderful um i know that that my favorite character was uh jack i adored her uh was that was she, she was her correct i yes. just wanted to verify her pronouns there um but who was your favorite who did you identify the most with so I love both Jack and Lily. I think I identify a little more with Jack um, and that sort of obsessive nature and striving to sort of win back a partner, whether or not that's truly in your best interest, I think. And, and I, I think and hope that's one of the questions raised in the story. Uh, and, and something that readers notice is that this relationship is not ideal right mm -hmm. um, and yet you know we're 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 seeing the story through jack's eyes and jack's basically sole motivation through the entire story is to get lily back so i think it puts the reader in a position to root for that but i hope that simultaneously they're also seeing that like this is toxic you know like this is absolutely <laughs> yeah lily lily was was a little bit harder to love uh, yeah. but the ending did not anticipate it. I will not spoil it, but I didn't expect it. But as soon as it happened, I was like, duh. I mean, that it it aligns absolutely perfectly with everything else. Um, so in this, you mentioned feminine rage. And one of the themes I think is pretty clear in this is that, you know, is ignorance really bliss? Is forgetting your trauma a blessing or is it a curse and and is that what you came into this with was that like a, a theme that you really wanted to push yeah so you know I don't think I I think about themes consciously when I'm writing a story but I can always reflect on you know how I felt about it afterwards and and I think you know um I have been in lots of therapy. I have been a therapist, uh, albeit not a great one and, and only for a short time. But a question that's been raised in my own mind is certainly, um, is it worth it, you know, to grapple with childhood traumas themselves? Or um, is it preferable to, to sort of like start with where we are and, and find some coping skills and, and ways to move forward. So I think I do have that background and, and that's something that I've considered in my own life and, and in working with others is sort of like, is it worth digging up old scars specifically, right? To just talk through them or should we just kind of start where we are? But I, I think more, more prominent for me is sort of this sense, and I, I won't speak for, for other women or, you know, or anyone, um, but I have this feeling of um, dormant feminine rage that feels collective and it feels generational. And, you know, I, I wonder how much that's shared and, and I hope to connect with other people um, who may or may not feel that as well through my work. So sort of my, my idea for these women on this ship that start to remember these things that happened to them 
was more of a collective awakening of like, what if we all just acknowledge that we're really fucking angry? You know what I mean? Um, About things that have happened at the hands of non-women, right? So generally cis men, certainly, you know, this is set in late 1700s. So they didn't have the language for, you know, uh, the gender spectrum at the time. So I'll I'll use men for simplicity. And that's certainly the case for, for most of these women. But yeah, I find it really interesting to consider, you know, what if there is this sort of collective rage of women that exists somewhere, you know, in this universe that we may or may not be able to tap into. Hopefully that makes sense. No, it it makes perfect sense. And I think that you did a very good job of that. And I'm going to say, um, while you have every right, if you wanted to go into this bashing men, you know, we all know that, and I'm using the same terminology that, that Ray used since this is taken, you know, back then, non-women, that that was, you know, they were just referred to as men. But it, the way that you took it felt so relatable to even me as a man. It was digestible. And I, I'm sure that there was information that I was able to glean from it that, you know, maybe wouldn't have been as digestible if it was a piece just, you know, existing to hate men. It wasn't. It was it was a a piece existing to empower women, which there's a very discernible difference in that. And I loved it. So thank you. Thanks for saying that. And, and I don't think that, well, I know that what I feel, and I hope that the message taken away is not in any way anti-man, but certainly anti-patriarchy and certainly anti um, the power dynamic of women being sort of property or a convenience uh, for men is something I'm staunchly against. And and I think that anyone who is not in the role of a white, straight, cis man, probably Christian, right, in our world, anyone who's not of that is probably pretty clear that they're not benefiting uh, from the structure of the patriarchy and hopefully can connect to the rage in this from that perspective, even if they're not, you know, a, a a, a woman who's been harmed by men, like hopefully all absolutely. those conditions don't exist to connect. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love that theme as well. I had my younger sister's getting married um, soon and I did have to sit down with her just to, you know, cause some of her posts were concerning to me to be like, you know, if you go into this marriage with a preconceived power dynamic, then it's nobody's going to win. So I hope that with this new generation of people that are thinking outside of the the typical patriarchy, we can eliminate that because going into anything with a preconceived power dynamic is going to set somebody up as less than their partner. Totally. Yeah. And, and I hope too, that the other thing people see in merciless waters is that I'm not at all saying that like, Sapphics have it figured out, right? Because the central relationship is incredibly harmful in this book. Um, so, you know, it's it's certainly not black and white. And I think anyone has the power to be really shitty to their partner. And, you know, it's we all just got to make the best choices to the best of our ability. Absolutely. I, I loved it. I think that you got many messages across in a very short span of time you made me fall in love with several characters i am so bad with names that i cannot remember the the sad one. Oh, yinka um, yeah what was her name yinka yinka she was 
absolutely wonderful. And I loved the juxtaposition between her type of rage versus the other women's types of rage, because that that trauma is still there, but it's a different type of trauma. Yeah. And, you know, Yinka came out of research into Rosalka lore, um, which, like I mentioned before, it talks about both women who have been murdered by a partner and women who drowned. Um, And I just thought about the potential difference in that, right? If you drown sort of accidentally um, versus, you know, being brutally murdered, one is going to make you pretty angry, where the other one would have a a different impact. So I wanted to sort of represent that. And the other uh, shades of Rusalkalore. So I'll say not only does it vary by region, but also by period and history. Um, The Rusalkalore predates when Christianity came to the area. And prior to the arrival of Christianity, the Rusalka weren't viewed as, um, as, as angry and vengeful. They were like fertility spirits. So I tried to bring that aspect in as well and and really merge some different layers of it because it does vary. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yes. I I loved it. Um, Unfortunately, I did, we, you know, moving away from Merciless Waters, because I feel like I could sit here and talk about this just all day long. I, I'm very fresh off of it. I read it, I think, last weekend, and it, I'm just excited. Um, so, in general, I feel like the first story that I ever read of yours was the the story that ended up in Taco Bell Quarterly. Um, it, was, it was very erotic in a unique way. Um, I know that eroticism is a big piece of your writing where do you draw your inspiration from yeah so first of all that's a hell of a piece to start with and and I'll say for anyone listening I wouldn't say that one's representative of writing at large but if you want to ruin your own day you know you can go read it at Taco Bell Quarterly Um, so so, and it's funny I just heard um, Paula Ash describe this and it's exactly how I feel as well. I, I really enjoy mixing beautiful with grotesque and, and horror and vice versa. So for example, um, with the erotic horror, I have a, another piece based on Russell Galore that is free on Seize the Press called Russell Naya. I thought it was really interesting to use sort of erotic language and the cadence perhaps of erotica to describe things like fingernails grating on bone unexpectedly. So it's sort of a horrific image, but using the cadence of erotic literature and then vice versa. I I think that's fun dynamics to play with and it really lends itself to body horror um, and I just have a lot of fun with the contrast there. Um, like I, I'm not really into splatterpunk type erotic horror where it's very, you know, extreme gore. It's usually really modern language and the focus is really on the horrific horrificness of the acts themselves. Um, I don't really lean in that direction on the erotic horror spectrum. I really like when it's sort of flowery language and it feels, um, you know, gothic or historical, but the reality of the images that we're evoking is grotesque, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it it tracks with everything I've read of yours. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Um, So part of that uh, eroticism, the erotica 
that, that you're talking about. Uh, Lady Mantis Books, your new imprint uh, specializing. Is it is it just like erotic or queer erotic? I'm sorry, I wasn't. So it's I, it's specializing in erotic horror, and and I didn't want to explicitly limit it just to LGBTQ plus authors. However, I don't think it's any secret that I'm a huge advocate, right, of queer work, and I, I do explicitly invite my community to submit because those are the stories, frankly, that I love and and want to see amplified. Um, so you know, I wouldn't count out a story if it's not queer, um, but of course, queer stories have a very special place in my heart. Absolutely. Likewise, I, I, I love being gay and I love everything gay. I love yeah. the queer community. It is such a key integral part to my soul. So I, I can say, yeah, I agree with you. Um, so we've already discussed what it is. So how did you come to be the editor for this new imprint? So I sort of joke that any success I've had with writing is just pure audacity. Um, and this is no exception. Um, I, when I started getting into writing erotic horror, I realized very quickly that there are very few markets for it. Um, once in a while we'll get like a short story call and for whatever reason, there's a few actually right now open, which is amazing. Roxy is doing one called the pleasure and pain. Um, Obviously, I just wrapped up one with April Yates, Scissor Sisters, mm -hmm. accepting erotic horror. So there's a few going on right now. But at the time, there was very little that would even consider it. And, and in most guidelines, they say that they don't want sexual content. So it can be hard to place erotic horror. Um, so, you know, I was wanting to write it. I was having trouble finding homes for my own work and in seeking it out. I was finding kind of that splatterpunk leaning erotic horror, but not a ton of what I was looking for, which was more like in the vein of um, the wicked and the willing or, um, you know, like the style of Evelyn Freeling's wonderful anthology that's coming out very soon that I always pronounce wrong, but Les Petite Moors, maybe? I'm the wrong person for it. Uh, we interviewed <laughs> them. The, so the, the most recent episode was with that uh team and i can't do it i i talk like a midwestern so i love la petite morts yeah i don't know, I don't know. <laughs> <Love> <laughs> it. so all that to say i felt like there was a gap in the market and um i was like what if i asked brigade's gate if they would give me an imprint and then i i told myself that was audacious even for me and i i put that away for a little while but it was one of those ideas that didn't leave me alone and a couple months later i ended up just saying you know what, um, this is probably a wild thing to ask you, but what do you think about this, you know, to Heather and Steve? And they really liked the idea. And, you know, they sort of did some research into the, you know, the nitty gritty of that, right? The, the contracting and what that would mean to set up an imprint. And the rest is history. We, we posted submission guidelines for a novella call that will open this fall and run through the end of 2023 with the intention of publishing four erotic horror novellas in 2025. And I am just so excited because I just feel like I, I get to read all this erotic horror for free. Like you're just going to send it to me for <laughs> submissions. Like it's such a treat. So you mentioned your call and what are you looking for, for your four novellas? 
So, of course, details are up there, but like I mentioned, obviously, I have a special love for queer erotic horror. Um, I think part of why I find that so interesting, in addition to sharing that identity, is there's a pretty clear narrative um, for heterosexual sex and a pretty clear even down to like order of operations, how that happens. And I've seen, you know, quite a bit of splatterpunky erotic horror around heterosexual sex. But for queer sex, I don't think that narrative exists nearly as much. I think in general, you know, I'm generalizing, um, but the LGBTQ plus community has a lot more room to play and experiment and do exactly what we want to do, what feels good and natural to us without contending with a script. And inherent in that, I think it's a lot of room to play with erotic horror um, because it's less set in stone. It feels more unexpected, uh, which is fun in erotic horror, right? We want to be shocked and surprised and titillated and all the things. And I think that lack of scripting, um, I know... I've had a lot of fun playing with that, with sapphic sex in erotic horror and doing things that are a little bit unexpected. Um, yeah, so so certainly uh, leaning queer, leaning historical. I'm a sucker for prose. I'll just say it. You know, I I love prose that I can like pull a line out and frame it on my wall. I've done it. I currently have a line from This Is How You Lose the the Time War printed and, and hung on my wall. I'm, I'm just, a, I always have been. I love it. So I love sort of beautiful prose, historical settings. Um, you know, I don't want to contend with cell phones all the time. Not that that's a deal breaker, but just a preference of mine. I sort of love things set back in the past. And um, I love body horror. Uh, yeah, I, I think those are are my some of my uh, ways to win me over, right? In, in a slush pile. You could tell that from your own work too, because there are often times where I find lines in your work where I'm just like, I shoot a picture of it to some, just whoever happens to be around because yeah, it's sometimes it's lyrical, it's beautiful. And that's oh what I look for in writing. So I'm excited to read these four novellas. Thank you. Yeah, when you said that, that actually, I mean, and this might be like hubris, but when you talk about my own lines, I just immediately think of the line from Merciless Waters, which is um, something like, uh, I I wanted to caress the shreds of her decay. <laughs> and, you know, like, yes. I just love the line. <laughs> you know, it's sort of written in the cadence of eroticism, but at the same time, yes. you know. <laughs> yes, I, I don't have my Kindle here. I highlighted um, some copy because you you sent me the art and I turned it into a, an EPUB to oh, read um, so that I can because I can't read on a computer for very long before I like yeah. do something else. Um, that might have been one of the lines that was beautiful. So I, I did. <laughs> I took some lines to, to highlight just to talk about. <laughs> so this is a Pride episode and nobody is going to be surprised. You know, we're talking about how much we love our queer identities, your sapphic identity, my gay identity. Um, and it, it's Pride Month, which is a wonderful month, very important month to our community. Uh, what does Pride mean to you? I've been thinking about this question, and hopefully I phrase this in a way that makes sense and doesn't sound um, terrible. But so I was like the last person to know that I was gay, <laughs> which is funny. Um, but truly, I... 
had lots of like experiences throughout my life, right? Starting at a really early age with other women. But I did not put this puzzle together until like my mid to late 20s, which is funny, I I think. So where am I going with this? I think because I essentially framed myself as a straight white woman for the majority of my life and came from an upper middle class family, Um, I have a lot of privilege and I acknowledge that. And I think I have come into queerness with the audacity of a suburban white woman. Um, (laughs) So to me, like, and, and I say that because I think perhaps, you know, some members of the LGBTQ plus community have had really terrible, heartbreaking experiences at a young age and, and the effect of that is that sort of pride is a way to like reclaim that and, and push back against bullying or mistreatment that they've experienced. And absolutely. But for me, I like, I just claim that space. Um, and, you know, for better or worse, uh, someone who had my upbringing has a huge amount of privilege and often a sense of entitlement. So to me, I feel like, uh, like you're going to accept queer people because what the fuck else are you talking about? Like, I, I don't like, does that make sense? Like, I it, don't, it absolutely does. Um, um, yeah. Like I just, I want to claim that and, and just um, absolutely discredit any feeling to the contrary. Right. And, and like all of my home state of Florida, all of these laws that are passed. Like I talk to people in my life that are are not queer. And to me, like there's no back and forth conversation to be had, really. It's kind of like, get on board or like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> so that's sort of what I mean with like the audacity of like a super yeah. white woman of like, uh, how dare you? And just like mystified, you know, I, I have no humility around claiming my identity or pride or sense that perhaps I shouldn't. Hopefully I've explained that well and not in a way that I sound like a monster. No, I, I think you do. You have that right because you're not wrong in the fact that why does it matter? I mean, like, duh, just mind your business you know it does nothing to yeah, do with you 100 percent. like you know like who the fuck are you what do you mean like i'm talking about your sex life what are we talking about <laughs> i love that yeah do your pride means to you is yeah audacity <laughs> yeah i also just love audacity as an idea of like claiming space in this world mm-hmm. and i i love the idea of like delusional confidence of like you know i joke a lot about um you know with my wife uh how does it feel to be married to the most beautiful woman in the world? <laughs> like that's my sense of humor. I, I find like delusional confidence empowering and funny. And like, I, I carry that same level of audacity for lack of a better so word. I'm the same way. I 100% the same way. I mean, people tell me that I'm cocky all the time and I don't feel like I'm <laughs> cocky. I just like a lot of that is my joking. I always tell everybody that I'm, I'm beautiful, smart and funny and like, yeah. like that's where those are my traits <laughs> but it's also <laughs> a little bit serious because if you you call it audacity but I, I just consider it you know standing behind yourself because if you do not understand your worth then other people aren't going to understand your worth so 
I think it's wonderful that you understand your worth and you rally behind yourself for it because look what you're getting. You're putting beautiful work out into the world. Thank you so much. And I think for me anyway, it's also a response to like uh, pushing back, of course, insecurity, right? So mm-hmm. when, when I say those things, um, it, it's very much intentionally uh, pushing away, nagging thoughts to the contrary. And yep. and I, I think it's very different from arrogance because I think truly arrogant people they like really like believe these things about yes. themselves in a way that wouldn't allow them to like make jokes like that. Um, but I, I just think it's fun. I would so much rather joke about with my wife specifically, like, is it hard being married to the most incredible human who's ever been born? Um, then like, you know, having moments of like, Oh my God, am I worth anything? Am I mm-hmm. you know, uh, attractive? Am I, you know, so it's like that, that, it's my my version of like pushing well, that away. And it's a little bit like putting it out into the world, you know, maybe it'll be conditioning so that she'll understand she's married to the most beautiful woman in the world. <laughs> <laughs> if, if she hears it enough, it's true. Yeah, sure. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> it hasn't worked for my husband, but hey, he'll get there. Well, um, we're working on that. We're going to win him over one day. <laughs> that's part of my like obsession thing like you said because I definitely identify more with Jack as well like I am absolutely obsessed with my husband oh, to the umpteenth degree and you know eh, he he's not quite as obsessed back but I don't need that <laughs> as I am my wife about the same thing oh I'm like have you ever met anyone who is this obsessed with you and she's like no <laughs> I, I say all the time what queer creators should we check out? There are simply so many. Um, I already mentioned Paula Ash. Honestly, Paula is like a genius and is writing on her own level of craft that is just like incomparable. There are so many layers to her writing. I'll caveat that with like heavy trigger warnings, right? So don't just walk into, we are here to hurt each other and, and, not read those because they, you know, it's very hard hitting, but gorgeous, stunning prose, so layered um, thematically. Cannot recommend Paula Ash's work enough. Um, Shelley Levine, incredible. Their writing is, again, gorgeous at a line level and really unexpected in terms of, of plot and theme. Really recommend their writing. Um, May Murray, brilliant, right? Um, Gosh, I could go on all day. Not in the horror vein, but um, dark fantasy. I recently read In the Roses of Pieria by Anna Burke, um, and that's coming out in August. I was fortunate to get an advanced copy, but it's very much in the vein of this is how uh, you lose the time war, which is all time, right? One of my all time <laughs> favorite books. So really recommend In the Roses of Pieria if you love true enemies to lovers and epistolary uh, steeped in history, you will love In the Roses of Pieria. Um, Lynn's McLeod, McLeod, I'm so sorry, Lynn's, I'm sure that I'm mispronouncing her last name, uh, but she has a novella coming out, no- novel, novella, I'm not sure, don't quote me on that, but it's called Beast. And it's from Bridgesgate Press. I got to read an advanced copy of that. And it's sort of a um, prequel, like an imagined prequel to Beauty and the Beast of Beast's origin story. And it is so steeped in history. You can really tell Lynn's did 
her research and it's gorgeously written. So really recommend that one, which is coming out pretty soon from Brigitte's Gate. Oh, that's so wonderful. I'm so excited that our community is, you know, taking the world by storm and putting such great queer work out into the world. Yes, absolutely. And Honestly, I could go on for the next hour recommending queer authors, mm -hmm. um, but those are just <laughs> like a handful that are top of mind. Yeah, absolutely. And we were going to be asking this question to every guest that we have on today. So we're probably, I, I know that some of these are going to repeat. We've talked about, um, we've talked about Paula previously in, in the series or in, in the Cutthroat Queens, whatever this is called. Um, and the, also Shelly. We, we discussed in the, the most previous episode. Um, so this is one, you don't have to answer this question if you don't want to, but how does your queer identity impact your writing? So tremendously. Um, so obviously I want to see experiences similar to my own reflected in media. So I naturally choose to write about sapphic characters because that's what I'm interested in and that's my world. But also, I hope that I'm contributing to creating more of that media for other folks that are looking around at this very heterosexual world and saying, where am I? I hope we continue to have more and more representation in media because it's important. Very important. It's so important. It's important for our little gay babies that are growing up not seeing themselves and not understanding that they are okay to be themselves. And that's what pride is about is us showing that it does get better. It, it gets great. Being gay is sorry to the straight people. No, no offense to the straight people listening or the, you know, you know, non LGBTQ people, but it's better. And Hey, maybe it wouldn't have taken me till my mid to late twenties to say, Hey, maybe I'm um, hooking up with these women. Uh, Cause I'm not straight. Uh, if there had been some representation that felt like that was uh, an option to consider. <laughs> I almost gave you that though. Like I almost offered that to you, but I was like, I don't want to, you know, tell her her experience, but I do feel as though that, you know, the, the normality of homophobia probably did keep you from understanding your truth because, you know, if, if you could fight back against being that marginalized person, obviously you would do it even internally. So I think that that's important that you have that audacity because I think that with pride, you would have been able to, to live this happiness sooner. Yeah, I totally think so too. And man, the terrible things I would have avoided if I had known that I was not straight earlier. Um, it's pretty stark, right? <laughs> and, uh, mm -hmm. just, you know, what did, what did I have growing up? Te Tila Tequila? Do you remember her? Yes. Shot at yes. love. With <laughs> that was the big representation. Uh, yes. You no, know, you know. Um, <laughs> I, I loved that. Um, I mean, she's she went a little bit insane. Like, not, I don't think like in the, the real sense of insane, but she's like super, you know, conservative now. Yeah, um, weird turn. Um yeah. Danny. I was I was in it for Danny to win that season. Yeah. Oh gosh. <laughs> I remembered right when you said Danny who that was. Um, but yeah, so you know, it's it's just important. It just is, and it should just be a fact of life that of course we should have this representation, because why wouldn't we? It's the equivalent of like having it be rare, you know, to see like 
someone having a dog as a pet in a show, but we see lots of cats as a pet. It's like, why would we do that? That doesn't make sense. That's not the reality of the world. Uh, and it's very much comparable to me. It's like, why is this like a special situation to have queer characters? Like we're literally all over the place. Like, <laughs> what Absolutely. are you talking about? <laughs> Everywhere. Um, yeah. Awesome. So I cannot express the amount that I appreciate you coming to talk to me today. I was very excited to get to have this chat. You know that I fangirl very hard over your work and I'm so excited to see your career grow even further, read more from you. Thank um, you so much. This was really fun. I hope that um, I come across not as like uh, an egotistical monster. That's certainly not my intent, uh, but I do advocate for delusional confidence for anyone who's struggling with insecurities. <laughs> So I, <laughs> I don't think you come across as egotistical at all. And I also don't think that your confidence is delusional, but I'm <laughs> probably not the best person for that because I am a fangirl to the degree. I very bad at being critical. Um, but <laughs> where, where can we find you? So where is Ray? Sure. So I'm most active on Twitter at underscore Ray underscore Knowles. Um, I also have a website that I do my best to keep up to date, rayknowles.com. And I'm on uh, TikTok. Uh, I'm very embarrassed about my TikTok. So do with that what you will. Uh, but <laughs> mostly on Twitter. I love your little TikTok persona. I, I've been watching them recently. So thank you, I think. <laughs> I'm too old for it, but I feel like I have to be there. I don't know. <laughs> that's, I'm working on getting the like the fear moved away to start doing it myself. You have to market yourself, and TikTok is a very good place to market yourself right now. But oh, I know it's brutal. It's brutal in your 30s. I'm trying oh. to, you know. Yeah, absolutely. All righty. Well, thank you again for coming out. And um, if you stay tuned, we will have one more guest. We have the gentleman from Slashic Press coming up next. All right, and we are back. We are joined by a couple of gentlemen from Slashic Horror Press. We have Leroy Cross James and David Jack Fletcher with us. Hey, guys. Hi. Thanks so much for having us. Yes, thank you. You're very welcome. How are you both this fine day? I was going to say morning, but it's not morning for all of us. <laughs> it? so. It's morning for me. Um, I'm good. Uh, currently really hot. Um, it's quite hot over here, so... But uh, yeah, I'm fine. Thank you very much for asking. And uh, um, David Jack, you're coming from Australia. so I do. I'm not sure if the accent gives me away, but um, g'day, mates. You're and, big um, <laughs> <laughs> um, Yeah, it's actually quite, quite cool here because we're coming to winter. So I've got the heating on behind me, um, which is absolutely lovely. So I'm really good. Okay, so today is the launch date. Well, when we air, today will be the launch day of Slashic Horror Press's first release, which is Raven's Creek by David Jack Fletcher. So yes. do you want to sort of introduce a little bit about where Slashic Horror came from and then and then why you decided sort of this was your your premiere release? I kind of had this idea a while ago 
of of starting a press. Um, and Lee and I have become really close after he interviewed me for um, an earlier book. And we we all pretty much all we did was just talk horror, talk books, talk authors. And when I had this idea about starting a queer press, I thought I can't do this on my own and I, there's no one else that I want to do this with. So I asked Lee and he was like, oh, my God, yes. <laughs> and um, it kind of just went from there. So recently in the last couple of years retrained um, to do editing and publishing because I wanted to sort of launch myself into this new career. And the experience with publishing my previous book actually led me to really have a um, an interest and, a, and kind of a fond um, interest in the publishing side of things as well as writing. And so that's kind of where from my end it started coming from. Um, and I don't know what Lee's reasons are. He was just like, yeah, I'm in, let's do this. <laughs> he looks like he's oh, regretting it already. Like, oh, oh he, David Jack <laughs> held me at gunpoint. And um, <laughs> um, yeah, it, when he when he brought the idea to me, it was something that I thought I I wouldn't con- I wouldn't consider it with anyone else, put it that way. And I and when he described what he thought would be a a good idea and how to start a queer press it just sounded like a great fit and and something that I thought I want to be part of this journey part of this journey of and it just went from there really um and it's do you know what it's it's been a a great experience so far so I can't really complain (laughs) oh oh, shucks you guys I know we're we're so soppy (laughs) Um, and so what are your respective roles within the press? Are you both editors? Do you have, you know, fancy titles? So I'm uh, the, I'm calling myself the acquisitions editor. Um, so I do all the, all the in-house editing, um, developmental line, copy, everything. Um, and I am qualified just in case anyone's wondering, because um, I know <laughs> that in this industry, it's really um, hit and miss with those qualifications. So um, so yeah, I handle mostly all that sort of that sort of stuff, dealing directly with the author once they've signed on um, in terms of how the book is going to kind of be shaped or reshaped, depending on what level of editing is needed. Um, and Lee, what do you do, Lee? Oh, I'm just a handyman that just is nearby and you can read anything. <laughs> uh, no, I, I look after the marketing side of things mostly, um, but obviously I do uh, other bits and bobs as well. Uh, marketing's my day job as well. So, yes, like David Jack, I am qualified. Um, but, yeah, it's just bits and bobs, really. I mean, as as we are essentially the, the team, both of us, we, we kind of dip in and out with bits and bobs. Like, you know, David Jack looks after um the paperback side of things i look after the ebook side of things so it's it's just that collaborative effort really on both sides of what our strengths are well i'm kind of interested in how you make it work with the time difference though because obviously you're only awake at the same time for about six hours a day so Uh, do you you get used to a lot of early mornings and late nights uh, what is sleep (laughs) (laughs) i don't know actually it's like um you know, we when I wake up in the morning, there's usually a message there from Lee that's like saying "Good morning." <laughs> it's like, <laughs> oh, so I have my morning coffee, and you know, we're we're texting and talking about things, and then he's like, "Well, I'm going to go to bed after about an hour or two, and um, and then when it comes to my night, I'll send him a more 
him a message going, good morning, because we can't know what the time difference is there. And he's like, it's too early, go away. <laughs> yeah, there's a if contrast. You could send coffee through the internet, that would be wonderful. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, we, um, we have stayed up late like mm. both of us uh, quite a few times, especially when we were were initially setting up, like when we were yeah. thinking about logos and, and names for the press um, <clears throat> and sort of like what direction we wanted to take. So we've both put in a lot of, um, a lot of late night shifts, haven't we, Lee? Haven't we just? <laughs> <laughs> I've got to say, I love the, uh, the name that you've gone with, the, the Slasher Cora name. I know it, it sort of comes from, is it Leroy, your podcast is his name slash horror yeah um, i love it i absolutely love it i think it's great oh thank you um we we had an, another name originally and um basically we we had to change it um i'll just leave it at that um, <laughs> <laughs> but um we were we were going back and forth afterwards and it just it just it was just an, an organic decision on both ends i think that 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 mm. was the name and when we both we both said it out loud it just made sense yeah, and it's going to suit sort of our long-term plans as well um, in terms of, like, building a, a fully rounded and fully um, fully well-thought-out brand. Yeah. So so with your press, you mentioned that, that it's a, a queer press. We mm-hmm. stand that. Obviously, we want primarily only gay things in the world. Um, I just feel like it would be a better place. I accidentally, <laughs> sorry, Elton, I went on record um, in my last interview when we just decided that queer is better than everything else. So we're just going to keep with it. Um, we are apparently just fully pro queer here. Um, but what kind of work are you looking to put out into the world? Um, so we are very proudly queer. That's what, well, that was one of the first things that we decided we wanted to do a queer horror press. Um, you know, we obviously know that there are queer authors and in the horror space, particularly in the indie crowd, um, and there are certain avenues to get published, but we wanted to sort of emphasise that a bit because it's, um, for us, it came across sometimes as like, you know, we we love queer stories from other presses, but it wasn't necessarily the the core focus of their business. And that's what we wanted to do to help create this space where, that is the core and that's what exactly what we're here for. So if that's a story, if that's the sort of story that you want to hear um, or you want to read, then you know exactly where to come. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, it was important to us as well to make a space where, I mean, at the moment, let's, let's just face facts. Uh, our community is in trouble um, really. And we just wanted another space for people to come and, basically a safe space to read queer horror see queer horror see queer authors and why not make it just a happy place for people to to come to absolutely see and i love that because you get to automatically know when you see a slashic that it's going to be supporting our community and the people that we love and also you're going to be consuming media that you can see yourself represented in and i love that guarantee yeah yeah and also it kind of helps as well with the like appropriation conversation as well. You know, if you've got queer horror authors submitting work to you, they're not going to be its own voice stories. So you don't have to worry about sort of uh, visibility versus appropriation kind of problems. You just know that it's coming straight from from the heart and from the, the lived experience of somebody from the community. So 
Absolutely. And one of the things that we really don't like is that sort of tick box exercise where it's um, if people say to us, oh, we could, you know, rewrite this character to be gay if that's going to help it get accepted. And it's like probably not actually because there's not that sense of authenticity there and it's it's almost just you, you doing it to get published rather than doing it for reason and as you were saying about own voices and lived experiences and things like that that's important yeah i think that's why so we set up this podcast wasn't it brett we just wanted to be able to sort of give people from marginalized communities that space where they could go and they could share their stories and um and i just i i can't be more sort of proud for you guys um having launched this because it, it looks like it's going to be an incredible journey for both of you you pre-ordered Ravens Creek already then to help support us. Thank you. Absolutely. <laughs> um, <laughs> don't start on me. I'm very tired. Um, so are you going are you planning to sort of venture into the anthology side of, of publishing or are you focusing mainly on, on longer works now, novellas and novels and and novelettes? Yeah, anthologies are in the pipeline as well. Um eventually. We just wanted to kind of get the ground running with a couple of um, longer form books first, just to get basically get some get some authors on our roster. Yeah. Um, we've just had some recent signings as well, which we're very happy about. Um, uh, I'm allowed to reveal it because it's already out there. But yeah, we've we've recently signed um, Mark Allen Goodalls, who's been in this community for a, a long time, and he's um, you know a queer a queer author that people know very well. So yeah, we're very happy about that. Oh, that's wonderful! Congratulations. And now, in terms of the anthologies, one of the things that uh, when we were setting up, I think both of us, probably more me than Lee, got a little bit um, carried away. Is that sort of in my nature? <laughs> and I was like, oh, we can do anthologies, and we can do this, and we can do that, and, and we can have these themes. And then it was like oh, this whole list of different themes. Um, and Lee's like, I'm going to have to rein you in. And I'm like, no, 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 no. And he's like, I'm going to have to rein you in. I'm like, okay. But so what the outcome of that was we essentially have two years worth of anthology calls. So we've got them all drafted up and we've got um, basically a schedule in place that my overthinking brain created. And I don't really know when I did that, but it sort of just came to be. Um, and now we're just waiting for the right time, um, you know, to start launching that because we have had so much interest, which I was a little bit surprised by, but really um, kind of warmed by at the same time. Yeah. Um, and now we want to put put our efforts into into what's happening there first and get all that stuff sorted. Yeah. Get the titles out. Um, you know, show the authors up front that they're our priority, and that's what we, you know. We only exist because of them. Um, and then once we've sort of gotten into that rhythm and, and have a bit of a um, bit of an audience and a bit of a, um, a feel of, of the space, then we'll know which of those anthology themes that we can start with um, and, and start entering that space. Awesome. Yeah. Which, which leads us on to Raven's Creek today, the launch of the longest book I've read in a while. <laughs> how, how many words was it, David Jack? Oh, um, like 95 yeah. or something. It really I was wasn't that say, It's got to be closing in on 100,000 words. Oh. It's a big boy. <laughs> He's a big boy. <laughs> He's well-fed, you mean. Absolutely. He is big-owned. 
What was your inspiration to write Raven's Creek? So the this one started from an open call submission. Um, and it was initially, it was, I can't remember who it was with, but it was a survival horror, 6,000 word limit. And I thought, oh, it's not really something that I've done before. I'll give it a go. And so I just sort of, I, I thought, oh, what could I do? And then the ideas just started, kind of started coming from there. By the time I um, looked up from the iPad, because I do a lot of writing on my iPad, um, I think I was at, at about 20,000 words. The open call had ended and um, I was like, uh, yeah, I don't know. But So in terms of the plot, um, I obviously had to do something about survival horror and I knew I wanted it to be centred around a gay married couple um, and, like, the connection between those two um, characters. I knew that I wanted that to be sort of a central focus um, there. And then I, I also knew that I wanted, as the story progressed, for it to keep the tension, to keep building, not give the reader too much of an opportunity for a breath um, and <laughs> keep the insanity kind of going worse and worse and worse. And that's why, you know, when they keep going down, um, you know, the further below ground they go, the, the worse shit gets. Um, <clears throat> and so for that, I, for that inspiration, I turned to Happen in the Woods, the film, yeah. <laughs> which I, I feel that that does that quite well. Um, especially when they take the elevator down into the facility and yeah. it's just this out sort of um, craziness. So, yeah, so that's that's it. I mean, I was I was going to start off the, the round of questioning to you with, are you okay? Just, it's, a, <laughs> it's a very extreme book. <laughs> it's, it's well, well most I need help. <laughs> <laughs> What's your primary diagnosis? <laughs> so, so what was like the... The, the idea behind having this be the first release for Slashic Press then, was it just that it was the most polished project oh. or did you want it to be you to go first? Actually, I wrote this, um, I wrote Raven's Creek probably about a, a year before we even thought of Slashic Horror. Um, and my intention was, because I'd only had a, I'd had a few short stories and then I'd had um, my novella published, and the intention was to try and just enter that sort of um, publishing arena through a small indie press. And I started submitting at places. Um, I had a bit of interest. By the time the publishers got back to me, and this is just the nature of the game, right? By the time they got back to me, I'd already done my next revision. And so their feedback was, um, was really insightful, but not necessarily relevant for the new version. And so I thought, do I send it back to them because I did have a few offer to, to send it back or wait like, and then wait a few months for more feedback or do we really back ourselves, put our names to the company um, and make this our first release. And ultimately we just thought, um, we thought it's going to look a lot better if, you know, we're confident enough with our own work to put it up in this press and that we're proud of this press, um, that that's probably going to attract people as well. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, so the intention initially, I was sending it off to all sorts of places. <laughs> I think I sent it off to um, Penguin at one, like I sent it off to a lot of places. <laughs> I was like, read my book. But um, 
but I honestly could not be happier that we've gone the way that we've gone. Um, you know, we've learned a lot of lessons with um, the creation of this book. And that was also one thing that we wanted to do is that if we're entering this publishing space, um, we don't want to, we, we don't want to be sort of like guinea pigging or like testing um, our processes on someone else. We want to do this right the first time and let's do it on my book. So, um, and I think we've done pretty well if I, if I say so myself. <laughs> All those late nights were worth it. <laughs> or early mornings. <laughs> or early mornings, yeah. <laughs> Without spoiling too much, because I, you know, this is the release date for the book. We don't want mm-hmm. to ruin it before anybody gets to read it. <laughs> A theme that I noticed is kind of prevalent throughout was kind of your juxtaposition between, you know, human monsters, actual monsters, and then humans becoming actual monsters. And mm. I I found that very relatable because it's a gay story and as a gay man living in the the united states midwest humans are my monsters um (laughs) was that intentional did you go into that survival story knowing that that's where you were going with it um not originally because it was supposed to just be the six thousand words it was just going to be a quick in and out sort of bang um but then i decided as it started to get a bit longer um, that theme just sort of started emerging because, um, and, you know, it all pre- pretty much all writers will say that, right? They'll just be like, you know, the story tells itself. And in this case, it sort of did just start emerging. And then I, one of my, um, one of the people in my local writing group, I think actually picked up on that. And I thought that's, it was unintentional, but I really liked that aspect of it. And so I played on it a bit more. Um, yeah, so, and I think with horror, particularly as a genre, it, it often does make critiques and comments about society. Uh And so the idea of like the monster, um, is really, really kind of cogent today. It's really something that's topical and people are, um, you know, talking about it in more abstract ways than they used to. Um, and so I decided that the, like the idea of the monster, um, and it being a creature feature, it sort of also made sense. Um, but it's not necessarily about the bodily form that we take, but, um, around our morals and and where our ethics fall and how our ethics can actually fail us. Um, and really blurring that line between, between human and monster essentially. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that I really enjoyed was the strength of Michael and Jeff, because a lot of times in queer fiction, even with queer authors, the the line between, you know, those gay, well, not me with the word. Archetypes. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. Um, <laughs> we, we still throw them in there. And I feel like Michael and Jeff were, were just kicking ass and taking names. And <laughs> and I, there's no question here, but I just that was something that I appreciated. I like seeing a strong ass gay character mm. in a story, and they're strong for no reason other than the fact that they just are because we are. Yeah. Well, I'm really glad that you picked up on that. <laughs> I, uh, I I I don't know if my husband's going to listen to this, but I sort of based the dynamics of the relationship 
on us, like on our real relationship. Um, not to say that like that's where the strength comes from. It's more just like the way that they interact with each other because that's that's a very human thing that, you know, interaction between people is very human. Um, <clears throat> and then, it, yeah, the, the rest of it sort of... Um, and because it's survival horror, you've got all the weapons and everything. So I knew that that sort of personality needed to be there. I didn't, um, yeah. And one of the things that I really like to do with my writing in general is to try and avoid those stereotypes um, because, one, I personally think they can be harmful but if that's all people are um, kind of digesting or consuming in the media. Um, you know, not everyone is Jack from Will and Grace. Um <clears throat> And for a long time, even when I was at high school and people, you know, because I came out in high school, people would be like, but you don't, you know, do what Jack does on the show. And I'm like, yes, because I'm a human and he's a character. Um, but You're like, David Jack. <laughs> I actually have been to do that on occasion. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so that's one of the things I like to try and do with my writing is to try and make the, the characters, whether they're gay or not, um, as human and realistic as possible. Yeah, that definitely came across. Um, a- another character that I thought was very human was Adelaide. Oh, yeah. I, I, love I enjoyed her a lot. I feel like she was probably my favorite in the end. Um, and so who, which character did you identify the most with? So when you sent me the question list and I saw that, my immediate thought was, oh, Adelaide for sure. But then I thought, actually... Is that me just saying that because of what happens to all the other characters? Um, and then I thought in terms of um, <clears throat> people's goals and desires, regardless of how, how they go about it, their goals and desires and, um, you know, what kind of lives in their heart. And so for that reason, I'm going to say probably Michael. Um, so with without trying to not spoil it, um, obviously a protagonist but he essentially, he lives for his husband. Like their, uh-huh. their love is super strong. It's unbreakable. It's unshakable. And throughout the entire book, they never argue or anything. It's just like we're in this together. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's the way that my husband and I are. Um, even when I'm super annoying, we just don't argue. So, um, and but his desire for family um, as well, because that, that's a running theme throughout the book is, um, you know, this quest for family and what does family actually look like in the end? Um, and that's something that really resonates with me a lot based on my own experiences with family. Yeah, I just think all the themes in this book as well are very sort of present, current to, to sort of the world now. And I think it's really, it's a very layered and contextual kind of uh, commentary about today's world, but also done in such a, an impressively buildy kind of way that the, the different changes of point of view from different characters, the different timings is uh, it's very clever. And I think everyone who's going to pick up a copy immediately after reading this, uh, listening to this is uh, going to really enjoy what they, what you, what you've produced. I think it's a fantastic debut for Slashic Horror Press. And I think it's, uh, I think it's going to do amazingly well. Thank you. Right. I should have got you to do a blurb for the front. <laughs> oh, it's okay. I'm not, I'm not famous. It's fine. <laughs> Um, so Lee, mm-hmm. you are not off the hook. Uh, <laughs> so we, 
I was told, and I, this might be incorrect because sometimes Elton lies to me outright. Um, <laughs> I was told that you are working on a book to be a release for Slashic as well. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Um, uh, There's the, actually two. Um, so I wrote a book called Camp Silver Oaks, which I self-published originally. <laughs> Um, and, um, basically we are going to do a re-release of Camp Silver Oaks through Slash Horror, and the sequel originally was going to come this year, but it'll be next year now, but I'm working on Camp Silver Oaks too, and I'm also working on something, I can't talk too much about it, but basically it's, it's my tribute to Toby Hooper, who was one of my favorite directors, and he did some really awesome films. I'm sure we all know the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, <laughs> Eating Alive, Poltergeist. So it's kind of a tribute to him. Um, but something that really resonates with me about when I when I do write is I think of writing as because I'm very visual. I like to base my writing on films I would have liked to have seen with a character like me, aka gay, <laughs> um, in that scenario. So that's something that's that's something that's important to me that when I write, basically. And Camp Silver Oaks is a YA, correct? It is. A lot of the inspiration behind that one, it kind of came from um Goosebumps and Fair Street and Point Horror, those sorts of books from when we grew up, but I wanted to make it for the people who read them in the 90s for now, yes. so it was a bit more mature. Um, so it kind of is like that mashup of Friday the 13th meets a Goosebumps book, basically. Oh, I love that. That's my favourite genre. <laughs> <laughs> Quick horror oh, books for grown-ups. I love it. It's, it's yeah. my thing. A young queer youth being able to see themselves in something is so important mm. um and i don't i don't care what anybody says about it you know we know who we are from a very young age and having that ability to see ourselves is paramount to the mental health of our next generation i 100% agree with that and it, it's it's like i said then um you know growing up i would always watch these films or read these stories and i'd think uh, I want to. I want to be this person. I, I want. I want to be Jamie Lee Curtis in Halloween. I want to be, <laughs> but obviously, I didn't see myself. Um, obviously, now through rewatching a couple of films, I'm like, I know what the directors and writers were doing with this character. <laughs> but, <laughs> but obviously, it wasn't prominent. So yeah, that's something that's when when I do write stories, they are very much based on the films I would have loved to have seen when I was younger, basically. One thing that I also love is um, about making the queer character the protagonist rather than the person on the side that gets killed first. The quirky um, best friend. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, and, it's, and they always sort of do the stupid thing or they say the stupid thing or they're there purely for entertainment value mm. for the audience to laugh at and to um, make fun of, essentially, and then they get killed, you know, first or second. Um, whereas what we're doing and what other great queer authors are doing is kind of reshaping that whole narrative <laughs> and making making us the um, the stars of the show, which um, I absolutely love. Yeah. Yeah. And making us complex enough to be the villain as well, which is, is also a, a lovely addition mm -hmm. that I think people are starting to come around to now is, is actually 
getting out your gay villains and and having them just be the horrific character. It's not just some middle-aged white guy living on a farm in the middle of America. I I think it's important, though, to sort of, on that point, think about um, the idea that they're not a villain because they're gay. Yes. Which is something that we've seen in film Mm. before, where it's like um, the big reveal is, you know, in Psycho, he's... he's, um, wearing his mother's clothing and things and it's like mm-hmm. oh, that, that explains it mm. well it doesn't actually explain anything <laughs> no, no. Um, <laughs> you know like that's ridiculous but so i think um the important point there is that when you know the the gay or, or queer character is not a villain because of the queerness yeah yeah 100 but, but yeah, don't yeah. tell us we can't do anything because we can even be your villains exactly 100 100 percent Okay, so we have a, a final round of, of questions for you guys. Um, and it's a bit, it's more personal now. It's not necessarily about sort of uh, the press or, or the release. Um, but what, what exactly does pride mean to you? So um, to me, like fundamentally for me, it's about being unapolog- unapologetically you, um, not putting on airs and graces for people to try and fit into what, what they believe you should be. Um, you know, but also appreciating the fact that, like, I'm gay, but I'm not the only type of diversity in the world. So pride encompasses all of that diversity. And for me to feel that pride and to um, engage in that space of pride is to appreciate and value um, and recognise the diversity of others as they are rather than what I want them to be or what I might perceive them to be. Um and also celebrating it every day. Like I know we get Pride Month now and it's like, you know, that's that's great. Um, but for me, it's something that, that has to happen every day. Um, you know, that's for me, it's a lived experience that I need to carry forward um, for other people um, who might not be in a position to do that. Um, and that's something that I think Slashik is, is sort of doing by publishing those queer voices and being unapologetically queer. Like, yeah, give us your... You know, give us your non-binaries and and everyone. Give us your trans. Give give it all to us. Oh. Not that we're greedy, but you know that's what um, <laughs> we want them all. <laughs> yeah, but you know, so that's what it is for me. That's that's wonderful that you have the right to take up your space in the world, mm-hmm. and I'm glad that you're bringing a press forward and taking up that space because it's important. How about you, Lee? I mean, David Jack just said that beautifully, so I will give you uh, an abbreviated version. Pride to me is about being authentic to yourself and putting two middle fingers up to the haters who try and take you down. Yes. I like your version better. (laughs) (laughs) I'm very worried. makes a better sound clip. And do you guys have any sort of recommendations, your favourite queer creators that that our listeners can can listen to or or reach out to, look up um, during Pride Month or or throughout the year that you you recommend yourselves? Yeah, absolutely. I I will will start off with one of my personal favourite queer creators, uh, which is also a fellow Liverpoolian, which is Mr. Clive Parker. Famous for writing the books of blood, uh, the Hellbound Hearts. Um, he's a fan. He's written just some fantastic uh, queer stories. Um, he's brilliant at world building. Um, his 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 books and his stories. It, it that that mixed genre of 
horror thriller fantasy he just he's the whole package and I, I obviously you can tell I'm very passionate about him I even did <laughs> one of my um one of my essays during my degree about him so um but yeah Clive Barker's definitely one I would recommend highly and um I'm gonna also plug uh, one of our authors because I was a fan before we signed him which is Mark Allen Goodall's um 2b is an excellent um novella and uh before he wakes is is just a fantastic thriller so if you haven't read those books guys uh check them out they are fantastic excellent i'm gonna go a little bit more local um like to australia so uh, so aaron dries um is is uh excellent he he's just won some awards and orialis award um his stuff is just so beautiful writing and um leanne pearson um is another queer author it's a, a bit of a strange spelling l-e-a-n-b-h is how you spell leanne's name um so she's uh, australian as well um absolutely brilliant and of course um now going overseas to um, Jonathan Edward Durham. I read Winterset Hollow in one sitting and um, I just thought his storytelling was absolutely beautiful. So, and the horror was like horrific. So <laughs> it was great. I really loved it. Um, yeah. So I think that any, any, any work by any of those three people, um, definitely check them out. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. We're going to finish up with a short reading from Raven's Creek. The building above sounded empty, looked at too from the cracks in the floor overhead. She didn't trust her eyes. They'd lied to her before. And besides, the floor above had been reinforced for soundproofing. Still, a few cracks had made their way to her. She could make out shadows sometimes when the light up there was just right, when the strips of sun allowed it. She still couldn't trust her eyes. Her ears, though, they hadn't failed her yet. The sun was going down, which told her that her captors were going away for a little while. Best she could tell they were underneath a barn, decked out with top-of-the-line security to keep her and the others inside, powerless. From the darkness, she'd studied them, learned their habits, their routines. She didn't know what they did when they weren't here, didn't care. All that mattered was that this was her chance. There might be others, but her mother's voice echoed in her mind. No time like the present. She hated that woman, though facts were facts. And now was the time. The shackle at her ankle was rusted, hadn't been cleaned in some time. She'd used that to her advantage. Rusted metal was weak. In the first few days of her arrival, she tried to dig her way out. Her efforts were in vain, but the dirt, with the dirt being more like clay. Between thick clumps, she'd stumbled upon something useful, a screwdriver. However, that got there, she didn't care. She plucked it from the earth and kissed it holding it close to her chest so she knew it wasn't a dream. The screwdriver was old and weak. Still, it was something. In that moment, picking off dirt and clay, it was everything. She tried prying at the shackles with the screwdriver for a while until it became clear it was no good. It wasn't strong enough to break the metal apart. She looked around for a solution. There was always a solution. And it hit her. The bricks, the mortar. Their prison was homemade, built from manpower and bricks and cement. The mortar scratched away easy, easy enough. It just took time. She'd, she'd used the screwdriver to do that for weeks. Or was it months? Time meant nothing down here. The mortar was a pile of dust now, the bricks loose enough to grab. Stop. 
one of her companions hissed through the darkness. They'll catch you and you know what happens then. The woman ignored her, continued struggling with the brick. It came loose, heavy in her hands from lack of hydration and sustenance. Even in her weakened state, she found the energy to smile. Please, the voice whispered again, her urgency shrouded by desperation. I have to do this, the woman replied, angling the brick above her shackled ankle. She brought the brick down as hard as she could, closing her eyes at the clang against metal. She smashed the brick against her chain again and again. Others in the dark covered their ears and mouths, afraid to make any sound in case their captors heard. The metal began to crack, spores of rust floating through the air as the woman beat her chain once more. It fell to the dirt with a low thud. She was free. The knowledge that she just gained some power kept the woman still for a moment. It could be a dream. She could have died from hunger in her sleep or suffered a fever and conjured up a dramatic escape in her head. Except the chain was in the dirt. She held it in her hands, held it toward the other prisoners. Anyone who wants to come with me? Her voice was firm and powerful. Now's the time. From a corner somewhere in their prison sounded a low voice. <clears throat> Just a scratch, the throat dry and weak from the initial screaming. It lasted no more than a day before it was beaten out of her, out of all of them. Me, the rasp said, take me. The woman crawled toward her, unable to stand just yet. Brick firm in hand, she beat the woman's chain until it too fell to the earth, powerless. She knew the position that this girl, she knew from the position that this girl was one of the more recent additions to the collection. This girl was their favourite too, getting more meat and fresh vegetables. Nobody knew why. The woman knew one thing about her. She'd seen their faces. Maybe even knows them. Beyond screaming at them on her first day down here, she hadn't said much, never spoke loud enough for anyone else to hear her. In the dark, she looked young. It was hard to tell through the layers of dirt and grime. Her eyes were a deep blue. No amount of filth could hide their beauty. The woman reached around Blue Eyes' shoulder and brought her forward. Anyone else, she asked. You don't have to stay here. Some shaking heads. Fear is an incredible force, she thought. And some nods. The woman went to work on the chains of all who wanted to come with her. Blue Eyes told them about her parents' farm, plenty of room for everyone. They could make it, they just had to get out of this dungeon, back upstairs to the barn. Four of them in total. The woman was unsure how many she was leaving behind. They all had a choice, and it was theirs alone to make. The monsters would be back soon. She, let the br she left the brick in easy reach of anyone who wanted it, and gripped the screwdriver as tight as she'd ever held anything. The three who were coming with her waited by the ladder to the dungeon door, unsure of their next move. And I'll leave it there. <laughs> my God. How's my reading? No, that's brilliant. It's very good. Yeah. Yeah. You read at least a third grade reading level. Well done. That <laughs> would be nice to our guests. Sorry. Right, right. You did better than I did. I did um, a reading of Cam Silverbergs in front of um, some second year students at my old university. And the anxiety got to me, and I was dripping with sweat. And I was <laughs> for words, and then they just gave me a massive round of applause afterwards. And I was like, "Yeah, I, I can tell it's because I look really nervous." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, readings aren't easy. So thank you, David Jack, for doing that. That was um, an excerpt from the brand new novel *Ravens Creek*, coming out today from Slashic Press. Thank you both so much for coming. Slashic Horror Press. Slashic Horror, but fuck's sake. <laughs> Oh Jesus Christ! You did. You, you were fine. You just. I was trying. <laughs> you could have just left it. You have to leave. Oh, I've been recording. You have to. 
Oh yeah, we do. Oh, we I'm yeah, we're going feed out just a, a bickering constant. Very lazy. Me calling, um, me calling Chelsea a cow or something. Oh. <laughs> yeah, thank you both for for coming and joining us, and telling us about this. We wish you the best of luck with the the release. Um, Ravens Creek, it's out today. Get your copy now. We will link everything below through all social media, and um, that is coming from Slashic Horror Press. Yes, slash a horror press. So one thing I did want to find out, each of you. Um, so where can we find you and your other work? Do you have any websites, links, anything like that? Yeah, I have a website called FletcherHorror.com. Um, and that links into my editing business, Chainsaw Editing as well. Um, and then on all social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And anyone listening that's from Maitland, New South Wales, just come for a coffee. Um, you can find me on social channels, so at Leroy Cross James uh, with two E's, not one, on um, on Instagram and Zombie without the E, <laughs> Leroy at Twitter uh, on Twitter. <laughs> uh, follow them on socials. Pick up your copy of Ravens Creek today, and thank you guys for joining us today. It's been amazing. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us, guys. You guys are amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, and that's it. That's our episode. Um, it's been Pride Month, and if you are so inspired, there are thousands of fantastic charities out there who could benefit from even the smallest donation from people who support and encourage the ongoing struggle for equality of all the people from the queer rainbow. Thank you very much for listening. We are the Cutthroat Queens. You are welcome. Yeah, you said you loved me. I